Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred and I were just talking about what it means to be safe or well, if it's possible to say something is safe. Well, I think you phrased it well as there's no such thing as safe as it's relative. And But this is prompted from a question from Dan, who apparently works with a medical device and they're in the development phase of it. And they're looking at a new regula- regulation that's saying that it, they shall create a product and that will not harm a patient or the user or other people over the lifetime of the device. And given normal, and it says, which can occur during normal conditions of use and has been properly maintained. So it has a, you know, if you use it as a, a, a wicket, um, then yeah, it probably won't work if it's not intended to be a wicket on a, on a pitch. So the, the idea is, is that his question was, is, well, how do you address this regulation? And, and, and I, at my first, I was like, don't you already address making a safe product? You know, is that it's, it, you do FMEAs and hazard analysis and design in safety features and alarms and fail safe features and stuff like that. And it goes, yeah, but how do we prove that it'll work over the lifetime of the product? And I started going off into accelerated testing and all the other stuff, but it was like, um, where's the, it doesn't say how safe <laughs> it isn't. It just says you will, shall not be adversely affected the health or safety of patient or other users. And if it's heavy and you got to move it off one bench to another bench during normal use, well, that's not, that's potentially very not safe. For the wrong person at the wrong right. time. I think we and we we've sort of touched on topics similar to this in the past, where uh, we had this binary approach to safety: something is either safe or it's not safe. Right. But in practice, there's no such thing as safe. It is what society of the day deems safe to be. Uh, it wasn't that long ago where society was okay with us not having seatbelts in cars, and that was deemed entirely safe. And right. We become become more aware as an organizer, as a society, I should say, and seatbelt technology improves. And so today, safe is you must have a seatbelt. Well, it's and it's still way more dangerous driving to the airport than it is on a plane. And yet, yes. what we deem safe for air travel is different than what we deem safe for car travel, and different for what we right. deem for heavy lifting at a warehouse, kind of thing. Um, I think it, the context makes a huge difference. But here, the question here, though, is is that now we have this regulation that until it goes to court or or gets adjudicated in some way, well, what is safe is how safe is safe enough? Um, they're working blind, and with right. the the history of medical devices, and at least in the U.S. with the FDA, it really depends on who is your inspector, who's overseeing your project when you applied it for FDA certification to be allowed on the market. Um, some are down to where did that calculation happen and how is that calculation verified? And to, to where point people just don't use Excel anymore because they don't want to spend the time to prove that it can calculate addition. 
you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And others say, no, you just need to be consistent and show that you're addressing the big issues and, you know, and have your process under control in manufacturing and stuff like that, which would be like with any product. Uh, it's kind of a dice roll who oversees your project. So they're kind of, the impression I got is they're worried about, well, how do I interpret this? And then I looked at it from a reliability point is during the lifetime of the device. Well, the trick is to say you have to, you can only sell the product and use it once and then you have to buy a whole new one and then you get a lot more sales or you go out of business. Right. Um, that's a very commercial <laughs> yeah. market driven approach. Um, very capitalist. I and mean, it's funny how you know, a, lot, a lot of people believe capitalism and market forces drive everything. But if that's the case, then there'd be no lawsuits because the marketplace will fix everything. Um, right. Uh, which is simply not the case, as we know. Um, but I think uh, it's just an example of a regulatory body which doesn't really want to make it easy for the industry, nor do they see it as their role as it as it to, uh, as uh, to make things easy for the industry. And, and it's very easy for regulatory bodies, especially of uh, in industries where safety is an issue, to simply say. Oh, you must ensure that no harm will ever happen. Oh, that's okay. It's very admirable. It's very defendable, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone says, "No, you can't say that," you, you, uh, you, you there's the safest thing to do every single every single day would to be never leave your house. That's, that's right. the safest thing to do. Yep. Never leave your house. Yeah, I had a I had a neighbor that was like that. He was he was a chemical engineer and he was doing a bunch of expert witness type stuff. And he goes, I don't know why anybody creates a product for sale in the U.S. It's just suicide because he's testifying against all these companies over and over and over again. <laughs> it's like, right. why would you ever do that? It's it's a challenge. It's, it becomes like like you said. It's it, it's uh, it, it's um it it can be suicide in a way because. There is, there, especially in the, with regulatory bodies don't help, in many cases they say, you know, this is, you have to make sure it's safe. I'd argue that actually uh, the automobile industry is an, is an example of the opposite, where they have federal motor vehicle safety standards. And essentially, if your vehicle complies with the standards, has a seatbelt, has ABS, all those sorts of things, then the vehicle is safe. If something happens because of that vehicle um, not performing the way it needs to, if it complies with the standard, then it's declared safe. You can't then go and sue the automobile manufacturer because apart from everything else, uh, things like maintaining that vehicle and keeping it in a good configuration and all those other, there's there's a, a certain level of responsibility for the owner and driver. Mm-hmm. And I think they learn pretty quickly that you just can't pin every single instance of mechanical failure on the manufacturer for these uh, for these vehicles. So. That was that's an example of where regular regulators say, okay, this is what safe looks like in a very prescriptive way. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that they could do a better job and they should have more of these and less of these. And I would certainly argue that these federal motor vehicle safety standards um, do not adhere to that principle when it comes to autonomous vehicles because they just say, ah, oh, make sure it doesn't crash ever. <laughs> you go, okay. Well, yeah, it's very much like the what this one is written. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm thinking of the Takata airbag thing. There's no maintenance on that. There's, it's just, oh, it mm-hmm. was, you know, poorly designed and made and such that it gets a little humidity and then it'll go off <laughs> on when it's not supposed to. And, but the, 
And but there isn't a rule that says you have to make sure that your chemical compound doesn't explode as it gets older. You know, they're not going right. to make it that specific. But if they were trying to meet this regulation or this the snippet that I've gotten from from Dan was is it shall not adversely affect you know health and safety of the in if it was automobile it would be the driver or passengers or anybody else and they would have to make sure that it they protected it from humidity over time and and made sure that mm-hmm. it did that and and they ended up being you know culpable for the issue that they're having and I think the cover up part didn't help but here's a guy that's on the design side saying, well, well, what do I do? How do I handle this? How do I make it? You know, what activities can we do in design practice can we do in our processes that we use to make this product? What should we do that says we're addressing this line, that it shall be safe over time? And the only thing I can think of is, well, the FMEA is a hazard analysis, the starting point, and then focus in on those um failure mechanisms that would lead to an unsafe condition and mitigate them it's, it's, it's to the extent you can. And at some point you have to say, short of not selling the product, we can't make this any safer. It's a scalpel. It is an inherently dangerous piece of equipment, <laughs> but we only sell it to yep. surgeons, you know, kind of thing. Right. It's a, it, it is a, there's yeah there's no as we say there's no such thing as safe there is there is um scope for um there are societal definitions of what safe is especially when it comes to things like scalpels Um, right but now how would you reword the regulatory statement saying that the characteristic performance shall not adversely cause compromise health and safety which is a very 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 broad requirement Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then over the lifetime of your system or, or whatever your device you're, you're putting out there. But how would you rephrase that to take into account that there's a threshold that's suitable? The, the, the next step up is when they say the risk needs to be essentially reduced to as low as reasonably practical or practicable. We've had that conversation in right. the past. That's the next sort of it's an admission that there is there are there are levels that in, in play here and it's um it's it's fair enough to say look you know uh, we we understand that nothing is going to be in perfectly safe all the time um so as low as reasonably practical practicable is is an attempt to uh still not quantified uh, it's not no it's not i mean if i make something that you know it given the current technology and our capability the risk benefit trade-off is such that it'll kill 10 people out of the hundred it serves. Um, that's the best we can do is that then it goes to society. Is that good enough? Or is it only kills 11 people? Is that okay? <laughs> you know, out of a hundred that it, I mean, if it's a, and people face this dilemma all the time. If, if you've got a, a exotic disease and it's a 50, 50 shot, if you go into surgery for it, you might take it. Whereas, driving to the hospital is way safer in that case than it is going under surgery for a, a tricky or difficult or hazardous procedure. But as a society, at least in the U S it seems to be nothing but a bunch of lawyers that are answering this question and they're not very, and deliberately not clear. Otherwise it re- reduces their business. Yeah. And 
It's a challenge because then it's also it comes down to to the personalities of, of the regulators who are making the assessment, mm-hmm. and that is something we try to avoid because you essentially you need to then produce a body of documents and evidence that you've taken this seriously to these regulatory like regu- regulatory personnel. They say yes or no, and you can't fight it because it's such a subjective term yep. that they then own it um, as low as reasonably practic- practicable is slightly better. Uh, but the problem is, what you, the good thing about federal motor vehicle safety standards is that we are pretty pretty aware of the main technologies in vehicles, um, especially internal combustion uh, vehicles. Yep. Uh, the vehicle hasn't changed a lot since 1980 or 1970 even. <laughs> 1918 is it, what I thought you said the first time, and I didn't agree. <laughs> oh, not 1918. No, no, no. no but, uh, I mean... You could argue against it that the obviously the rides are a lot more comfortable. There's air conditioning. There is suspensions clearly come a long way in power steering, everything else. But at the end of the day, you have an internal combustion engine, some sort of transmission, a differential, wheels and tires, um, a steering wheel, accelerator, and brake, and maybe clutch if it's a, if it's a manual transmission or a, or a stick shift. Mm-hmm. That fundamental layout has not changed for a long, 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 long time. Um, so a lot of these federal motor vehicle safety standards are very valid, as is the fact that um, the way you die in a car crash <laughs> hasn't hasn't changed a lot either. So right. the seatbelt is as relevant a technology now as it has ever been. Um, it's where you have these changing technologies or these new new cool devices, especially in the medical device world, where regulate reg- regulation often just doesn't. As, as we see it today, doesn't do a good job. And let's be honest, the people who get into the regulatory side of the career path, uh, they have either, they're not interested in being innovators or they failed at trying to be at being innovators and this is, this is plan B. You don't want those people to be putting a, a red flag up to every, every, uh, every new invention that comes your way. And I'd argue that's exactly what's happening right now when it comes to, again, autonomous vehicles. So is it, it's a challenging, challenging scenario. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I've worked with a handful of companies over the years with medical devices, trying to show that they, you know, they're doing the due diligence and getting all this stuff right. And it's amazing the amount of work that goes into it. And I'm always very complimentary of their diligence of getting stuff right and exploring all these different mechanisms and going after it. I and mean, I worked on a eye surgery um, device that, um, it was one of the very rare ways to treat uh, macular degeneration, which is a, eventually will create blindness for the patient. Um, right. And and this device would um, use the the common treatment is radiation, but radiating the entire head is one very dangerous because there's a lot of other soft tissues there that should not be getting a lot of radiation. So. They created a device that was yep. very, very discreet, very local, and very controlled um, to treat the macular degeneration, the cells that are creating it, and not expose everything else to harmful radiation. So it was it was pretty clever. Um, but there was one of the few companies in a, in a handful of others in, in this kind of circumstance that they pay attention to is the measurement system we're using. Is it good? Is, are we making decent measurements? So many factories, so many places I've been where they say, oh, we just measure the voltage. And says, well, how good is that voltage measurement? 
you know, and they're getting yep. these wild random errors in it because it's got a two point contact and it, it's just, it's just making a lot of noise. Um, where these guys, you know, did the due diligence, really paid attention to a lot of stuff. And part of that is they wanted to make a product that actually worked and didn't harm patients. They were, they had the mm -hmm. right um, attitude in part because the regulations say to do that, but also in part for their business model that if we make a product that's harmful, people aren't going to use it. It's not useful anymore. And But I think they, they were on the right side of that logic and, and culture. And so they did a lot of due diligence. They, they spent a lot of time double checking and, and experimenting and making sure what they were doing was correct and asking all the right questions and how could this fail and so on. Uh, and they took hazard analysis and and life testing and, and ex understanding failure mechanism very carefully, very well. But at the end of the day, it's the societal cost benefit is this procedure creating more benefit than harm. And if, if so, then they're going to be successful. <clears throat> but it was always this, how do you know if this is the right balance? And they constantly talked about it. Uh, which was refreshing as opposed to other groups that are like, how can we get past just this regulation and ship it? You just, you just talked about culture, Fred. Oh, I hate that stuff. Well, What's the famous quote? When somebody talks about culture, it makes me want to get my six shooter out or something like that, which is also a bad part of our culture. But <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it, it just goes to show... Um, that's the issue. I mean, you, you've had so many examples where regulators have assessed something as being safe. And that previously safe thing has, well, the designated safe thing then goes on to explode and cause, you know, fatalities left, right and center. Right. So, so the reality is, let's just be honest about what safe means. Safe means that it has satisfied some subjective assessment about what it is to be safe. There's no ubiquitous, this is safe, this is not. So um, before you before you launch a rocket into space, especially for manned missions, you have a safety check. Well, the safest way to, uh, if, you, if you're that serious about safety, um, the safest thing to do would be to not launch rockets into space with human beings strapped to the nose of, of essentially a controlled explosion. That's right. <laughs> yes. And that's that I'm being facetious because it, it, you, you go through the safety checks and it's still an inherently unsafe thing to do. But there is a point by which we say this is this is uh, satisfies the definition of safe as it applies in this context. Um, and a lot of the time it just comes down to culture. The difference the, we know that the the, the uh, two space shuttle disasters were a product of culture because both those space shuttles had passed their safety checks. You can't see my air quotes with my fingers mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in the air, but they were declared safe. So those spacecraft, whether you want to admit it or not, were safe because all safety is is uh, us designating something as being safe. Um, the fact that it might in a different way or more, a more a thorough review be actually declared unsafe is irrelevant because it you don't, hasn't, doesn't inform a decision right. uh, anymore. So that's that's the inherent problem with when it with things that when when it comes to safety, it's you, you can easily declare something safe by complying with standards or whatever it is you believe the regulator of the of the day is interested in seeing, but it actually comes down to culture because 
if you're designing something which has new technology, you need your designers and your manufacturers and everybody else in between to really know or have a really good culture when it comes to safety. So they don't do stuff because someone tells them to do it. They do something because they genuinely believe the organization is all about safety. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the point of this group I was working with. It was, it was so refreshing that, you know, they say, well, what happens if this wears? And they're like, oh, well, we only get so much margin on this, this in containment piece of it. So that could be an issue. So we set up a whole test to measure the rate of wear and they set the, how many actuations they could actually do based on that and how much margin they needed to remain. And it went into detail, uh, but they weren't shying away from it. Oh, that'll never happen. Or that's not, that's not part of our hazard right. analysis. You know, we, we did that and we can't do that. And it wasn't swept under the rug. Every um, potential risk was examined for, and you know, and some were say, yeah, there's not a lot we can do if a satellite, you know, falls out of the space or if there's a bad rocket launch and it lands on our, our equipment. Yeah. There's not a lot we can do about that. Then it's not safe. But you know, it, it was the chance of that occurring is so small that we're, we've got other things we need to worry about. And so they were balancing what are the one, what can we do something about, but which ones would really not be beneficial to the patient not, and, and the, op, the surgeon and other people. And let's deal with those. And the, the obscure a ferret comes in and chews through the wire. Well, we're not going to worry about that one, <laughs> you know, as much. Right. <laughs> I remember um, in Afghanistan back in the day, we, we were essentially there was a, a, a new. I won't go into too much detail, but there was a new. Uh, there was a, a a weapon platform or, or ammunition that we could use um, that was just better for everyone involved. Let's call it that. Okay. Um, but Except for the we, recipient, we I suppose. It. No, no, no. It was better. It was less lethal and everything else. It was. Mm-hmm. It was better, um, less lethal, but more effective at the same time. What you sh- what we should be trying to, to trying to work towards, mm-hmm. um, but we couldn't. We weren't allowed to use it, and the reason why is because there is asbestos in the um, the lettering of the serial number on the munitions. So what? we're talking what about trace trace asbestos. Well, actually, to be to be fair and to be clear, I should I should say. Uh, that we couldn't demonstrate that there was no asbestos in the in the, in the paint used to to put the serial number on it. Oh now, my God! Now, <laughs> if anyone's been to Afghanistan, and I know not everyone has, but there's a lot of Soviet-era buildings which are knocked to the ground, and there's asbestos everywhere. <laughs> Just walking right. around, yeah. you're, you're tripping over asbestos, and it's 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 uh, it's not it's not it's not okay. But that's the price you have to pay if you're going to well i had a call to, like uh, that somebody what you do. um somebody was worried called me once when i was working at hewlett packard and i don't know why i got this call or somebody was pranking me or something but it was sound like a legitimate customer worried about the amount of cadmium um in the device i think it was a computer and i like cadmium um I know what that material is and I asked a few people and got back to her and it says it might be in some of the red lettering on some of the wiring. And she was like, right. thank you. We'll never buy your product. Uh, okay. 
I'm not going to argue with you, but okay. <laughs> I don't know. It, she didn't worry about the lead or anything else, but she was worried about the cadmium for some reason. And that was, that was her thing. And okay. Uh-huh. But it was an interesting exercise to figure out, you know, cause it was like four suppliers down the road to, <laughs> to figure it out. <clears throat> you know, and, and there's only so much a person can do in their own design and own conditions and so on. And, and the supply chains we got these days are so complex. It's really hard to know what's happening four tiers away. Um, and that adds a whole nother level of uncertainty to the whole equation. But at the end of the day, if your nameplate's on it, it's your fault. Right. That's another issue. That's a whole whole nother podcast topic. Yeah. Yeah, That might be a good segue into that. Um, you know, if you're facing a, a dilemma of well, what's how good is good enough, which is a more generalized uh, approach to this thing, is it's similar to how safe is safe enough? Um, let us know. It might make for a couple more good podcast episodes. Plus, we could chime in and give you some more context or or, or discreet feedback right on your question. So we we thoroughly enjoy hearing from folks. You can do that by going over to ascendoverliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can leave us a voice message or a written message. You can contact Chris or I on LinkedIn or or the other hosts, I should say, on LinkedIn or on our about pages on Ascendo. And um, given the traction of the site and the number of questions that we're getting, um, I think that process is working. So um, it might not work for you. Yeah. That's okay. We don't know if it's good enough, but uh, you can help us test that out by just sending us a comment or a question. We'd appreciate that. But I do believe the culture at Ascendo is continual improvement. So there you go. Yeah, that's right. And, and luckily, there's plenty to improve all the time, <laughs> including my voice. I got to work on that. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Chris. No we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.